Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cattleman's Call podcast. Lane Nordland, happy to be with you here today. And just like our past show, we are actually able to be face-to-face with producers from out in the countryside. COVID-19 slowed us down, but we still continue to have those conversations over the phone or even via Zoom. But I tell you what, it's just great to be able to sit down with uh, cattlemen and women from out across the countryside. And we're actually in Mayaca, Florida, once again. Our our last podcast also came from here with uh, our friend Jim Strickland with Blackbeard's Ranch and uh, Clay Bertram with the Federation of State Beef Councils. Uh, That was a great conversation discussing the important role that beef producers play in sustainability. If you didn't catch that show from live down here in Florida, make sure and go and check it out. And today, the sun is shining, the grass is green, and back home in Montana, it is blizzarding. So I know I am not too, uh, I don't have too many fans at home right now, especially on the home place as everyone's calving. But uh, I'll enjoy this uh, nice, humid weather that we're having here today. And I'm excited to be joined by uh, members of the Florida Cattlemen's Association here today. Their executive vice, President Jim Handley, joins us here today, along with president of the FCA, Gene Lawless, joins joins us here today. Uh, uh, We were a part of a big old broadcast reaching 25 national TV networks today, but uh, uh, promoting beef and sustainability. But uh, you can go listen to that last podcast that we talked about there. And I think I've talked enough. I think we need to introduce our folks here today. But uh, uh, Jim, how are things down here in Florida going for you? Lane, we've had a fairly decent winter. Um, we first of all want to thank you very much for you all coming to visit us. It's a beautiful spring day, and uh, you brought a little drought-breaking rain. Thank the Lord uh, we were getting parched, but we had two to three inches across the majority of cattle country down here just on Sunday, and I know that delayed some of you all getting in. But uh, we're at the beautiful Blackbeard's Ranch uh, uh, a National Environmental Stewardship Award winner, and that's what brings you here to discuss sustainability. But in the case of Florida, uh, growing conditions have been fairly good. Within the last 45 days have been fairly dry, but we didn't have too harsh of a winter, and our cow herd is uh, looking to be in pretty good shape. In some places, it was a little wet in the early front end of the winter, and I've talked to a few ranchers that have test weighed some calves, and and they might be a little bit light, but uh, if we get, if spring is sprung and we get this moisture, this grass will shout and we'll catch up with that, those lost gain days. Well, uh, I tell you what, when I hear two to three inches of rain, I'm like, oh man, that would take us uh, several, several days or we'd be flooding pretty good on all of our creeks back home. But uh, uh, Gene, for yourself, uh, you're about an hour and a half east, you mentioned? Uh, yes, sir. About an hour and a half to the east. And with your operation, of course, you're president of Florida Cattlemen's Association. But let's just maybe talk about your your operation, uh, who's a part of it, how long you've been on that place, and uh, just more about your background here in uh, Florida's cattle industry. Okay. Well, I am what I call myself as a sixth-generation Florida boy. Uh, One thing my family forgot to do is buy land. Uh, We kind of got in the construction side of things, and and that's what my family does today. Uh, But I grew up in a little town called St. Cloud, Florida, which is no longer little. It's uh, pretty big now. I think when I was growing up there, we had one red light, and now I think there's 30 through town. And uh, population was 10,000. Now I think it's uh, in Osceola County is around 400,000. So you can see that breadth of, of... of growth that we've had in the last 30 years. Uh, I've had the unique opportunity of managing a ranch, uh, like you said, an hour and a half from where we're sitting here today. It's uh, called Archibald's Buck Island Ranch, and it's owned by a private family foundation. Uh, And 30 years ago, they struck out to do environmental type research. Uh, We just so happened to run about 3,000 head of cattle on that 10,000 acres as well. So over the years, uh, we started looking at all the birds. Uh, All the scientists that were in the organization were ornithologists, so they looked at all the birds, which, you know, some people at that time said, what are they doing that for? But today, when we start talking about sustainability and those type of things, for that 22.5 million people out that we have to reach, that is very significant. Because when I go to a, um, the different meetings that I go across the state and I tell the general public or a uh, 
Audubon Society or something like that, that we have 171 bird species that frequent the ranch, 484 plant species that are on that ranch. And they said, well, what are you doing different? I said, we're ranching. We do the same thing that they were doing before it became a research facility. Well, and that's one thing that we see so much of here, and uh, Jim Strickland mentions it uh, in almost every talking point because it is important. Over a 1,000 people move to Florida every single day. Well, that means uh, there's going to have to be somewhere to house them, and that means more developments, more land taken out of uh, whether that be swamp or, or a prairie land or, or production agriculture. Um Jim, from your perspective with the association, um, what what are some of the work that has been done over the past few years and decades and up to this point looking forward, uh, helping share that message of why we have to conserve these lands and why working ranches are a part of species conservation and land conservation and environmental stewardship? Yes, Lane, to give you a little bit of a, a feel for the size of our of our uh, ranching industry in Florida and age, we are celebrating 500 years of cattle in Florida just this year. And um, <clears throat> uh, we have a, a, a it's basically a, a cow-calf state across the board. We're a grain deficit state. There's not enough grain to sustain our dairy industry, much less uh, doing much feeding in the cattle industry. But the footprint of the beef cattle industry, we have like 910,000 brood cows and a total 1.6 million beef cattle, all classes considered. There's only about 15,000 operations with a cow in the state. Um, And most of that is private land. We do graze some public land in the name of conservation. There's been some some parcels bought up and places for wildlife management areas and for for uh, uh, conservation purposes but we encourage most cases that was ranch land and we encourage the agencies that take ownership to allow us to continue to graze those because they for some reason liked the way that property looked and it was being managed with the the tremendous experiential knowledge of our Florida ranchers and with a set of cows the message that we try to send, and, and of course the makeup of the, the cattle business, the majority of our cow herd is down through the heart of the state, down the ridge of the state, not on the coastlines. Our population growth primarily has has occurred on the coastlines, say uh, west of I-75 and, and uh, east of I-95. And uh, we have over 22 million people. Uh, and growing certainly we're going to see more pressure coming inland and there are pressures on our ranch lands as as land values skyrocket and as uh as folks uh that that decision makers might implement uh public policy that restricts how a man operates a, a man or a family operates on their on their ranch land he's quicker to say yes to a developer but uh, we've implemented a lot of conservation programs, uh, conservation easements. Uh, just in my 23 years with the association have become tremendously more popular and an alternative that some families are embracing that allows them to continue to ranch but sell some of the, the development rights to properties. And, uh, and as it stands today, there's more property owners in line with their hand raised saying, I, I am interested in discussing a conservation easement than there are dollars to to buy those, purchase those easements. And some are through the state, some are through our Florida Department of Ag, some are federal, some are through NGOs, but the combination of those has certainly uh, conserved some property. But we've got to constantly preach what we do for the land. Water filtration, uh, air, open space, uh, endangered, threatened and endangered species, habitat, uh, controlling invasive and exotics, um, all those things we do on a daily basis. And uh, some of those cer- those environmental services are certainly taken for granted. Well, and that's one thing that I love about this show is being able to share all the different struggles that producers go through in different parts of the nation. And even though it might be a different struggle with more of a population here, maybe different types of endangered species, at the end of the day, what impacts you here still has an impact across the nation. And 
or it could be an example of how producers, and I'm using my example of being further west, we're seeing a large increase of people coming into the west trying to get out of the cities and whatnot. And I, I, I think that as an industry, we all have to listen and learn from each other in these circumstances because the hard work that you have all put in with agencies and with the legislature and the PR and bringing people out to these ranches that, that has to trickle into these other uh, cattle producing states as well. And Gene, for yourself, as you mentioned, uh, focusing on, on birds and reaching out with these other uh, researchers and nonprofits that probably you work with on your ranch, there's probably people that still don't agree with what you're doing on your operation with cattle. Do you have to deal with environmentalists a lot or is what the proven um, story that, that you are, are, are telling, or is that winning more people over? I'm assuming so. Yes, I believe it is. I mean, Jim, I think he, he'll even say it as well as we move along here in this broadcast. But, you know, the thing about it is, is it's like all things are always like sustainability we mentioned earlier. You know, it's suspect to us in the beginning, but as we now learn to embrace it, sustainability is, are we going to be here in five years or ten years down the road? It's not so much what we perceive as sustainability. But over the years, you know, I, again, I've sat in meetings where there's been uh environmentalists there's been state agencies there's been decision makers and things and yeah we a lot of disagreement and agreement but we've come to a common ground to where you can get, build solutions and then you know like water you know uh, water is a common ground across the united states uh, we usually have too much of it and we don't know what to do with it but there's times that we don't have enough of it uh, so when we start looking at the common things that affect us all is you know is where we have to get to and I, I think over the years we've gotten better because of unity and that we know we've got to come together for solutions and when you bring sit and bring up unity though that's also unity within the cattle community here in the state as well that's correct i mean and so what are some suggestions of having that unity come together because I know there's parts of the nation where there isn't um, exactly unity on all issues within the, the, the cattle business. What, what are some examples of how that unity, and Jim, you can jump in there too, of how, how we've been able to get everyone at the table. Maybe they don't agree on everything, I can guarantee you that, but just trying to have that unified, vo unified voice on so many issues. Well, it's constant outreach and there's, there's certainly challenges and there's some people that are more engaged than others and some people that uh, that uh, may not have access to or are not taking advantage of some of the facts that are out there and we have to work hard to try to help them uh, see um, the, the, the get engaged and see the good that we can do by working together and communicating openly and not be afraid of NGOs not being afraid of interacting with our elected officials in our case in Florida with our population uh, growth uh, and it's no different in a lot of other parts of the country but uh, ag is a huge industry in Florida there's over 300 crops grown here the footprint of the beef cattle industry is on approximately five and a half million acres um, <clears throat> but there's a lot of people that don't know we even exist and our elected officials we have term limits uh, in our in our uh, at the state level and so we are constantly spending time to educate those people, but we need ranchers to help us educate those people and to interact with those elected officials so that they better understand what we're trying to do. And in the case of a rapidly growing urbanizing state, um, uh, our, our big concern is, is, uh, is ranchers being kind of driven out of business and we'll plant the final crop, and that's asphalt and concrete. Well, you mentioned term limits. That's uh, that's such a double double-edged sword. Um, I understand the need for term limits, but I understand the challenge of when you do have a good legislator there that understands your issues. They're they're termed out. In, in Montana, we have the same thing, and we have a, a, a biennial legislature, so it's every other year that we have these issues or, or have a legislative uh, uh, session. Excuse me. And uh, how important is it for? your association and success for folks to show up on certain days of the Capitol and uh, talk with their legislators? Because you mentioned that, that turnover in elected officials, you have to have that one-on-one uh, building that connection. Uh, how much time goes into that? And, and well, how much time should a producer be putting into it themselves? We encourage our local county leadership to 
in be engaged with their elected officials uh, uh, 12 months out of the year. Don't just go to them when something's on fire and when you have a problem. Most of the time, those elected officials want to know people that have a, a footprint in the of property. They're paying property taxes, they're employing people, and they're typically longstanding businesses uh, in, in their given county or community or district. So we encourage them to, to, to invite them to their county meetings, to interact with them. Don't wait until something that we have a problem, but try to be more proactive and, 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 and invite those people to their properties, to their places. Open up, open up your gates. Bring them right around on a Sunday afternoon. What, what, what more pleasant thing to do is there to ride around a beautiful ranch and watch cows and calves graze. Uh, but, it, but it takes some effort. It takes a little bit of changing of attitudes. But from a standpoint of our association, we're trying to be constantly involved and engaged. From the standpoint of our formal session, it's 60 days long every year. Uh, typically, you know, it's in the spring. It's either January and February or, or uh, March and April, depending on odd or even year. This year, uh, in 2021, it's March and April. So we're rapidly approaching the last two weeks of our session. But we try to uh, make sure we utilize uh, uh, third-party experts, primarily uh, scientists, and develop a relationship, say, with the USDA uh, agency, such as NRCS, such as the Farm Service Agency, certainly our land-grant universities, the various uh, research stations. In the case of Florida, we work very strong in an ag coalition of all ag commodities, working uh, all ag-related issues. If it affects a dairyman, it's going to affect a beef man. If it affects a citrus grower, it's going to affect a beef person. If it affects a timber grower, it's going to affect a, 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 the land use of a cow-calf man. So we, we uh, those are our brother and sister uh, organizations. We encourage people to be members of those organizations, and we share a lot of members because everybody chasing diversity has multiple enterprises on a given ranch. That's that's real real common in the state. Uh, what commodities depends on where you are in the state. But trying to work with them and uh, in a cooperative manner, uh, we have strong working relationships with 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 their leadership, with their staff, with their government uh, affairs people. And we're all trying to pull the wagon together because we're less than 2% of the population of over 22 million people. Well, and with that many 22 million people, that means you have way more House of Representative members in Washington, D.C. than Montana's one. How, how is that a benefit, though, to cattle producers here in Florida having a little more uh, opportunity to reach more people in Congress versus smaller states that only have one or two House members. That, 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 uh, again, uh, as I can say, that could be a double-edged sword, but that could be more opportunities for votes towards pro-cattle legislation. Uh, frankly, Lane, uh, it is double-edged sword, uh, and we're constantly trying to raise PAC dollars, both for our state PAC, and we utilize the NCBA PAC because we have 29 elected federal positions. And on one hand, that's great. Certainly some of those 29 will understand ranching and think about it. And there's placement across a wide number of committees and, and things. But on the other hand, I've got 29 to sell, not just one or two. And we can help our friends in the West. You guys might have a public lands issue or, or I don't know, a brucellosis issue in, in the park or something that we can help with. And then vice versa, we need help. Uh, uh, at times from our friends all over the West. And, and it's a pretty small industry, the network. We have friends that are ranchers that, that all over the country. Uh, when I say we, the state of Florida, we get a lot of seed stock here. Um, and we've got, uh, we, we communicate uh, across state lines fairly frequently about uh, issues of concern um, that would benefit all of us. So, I just say being engaged and trying to be players and trying to be at the table in with the decision maker makers is vital um, for us to be heard. And uh, Gene, a part of this, obviously, it always comes down to the 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 time taking time to be proactive and being involved. And I know it takes a lot more time to be active, especially on an executive board as well in leadership within the association. Uh, what are your words of encouragement to uh, producers out there of all ages on, on why they need to pay a membership due and participate on a state and national level? 
Well, you know, I believe it's about getting up, showing up, participating, and never giving up. You know, we're in a different time today than we've ever been. And, uh, you know, I never envisioned, like myself, being sitting in the seat that I've uh, sitting in today, but I'm truly honored and blessed to be able to serve as president. And it's just getting, I mean, understanding that the issues that we're all facing, and uh, I, I think Jim mentioned it, we got to get the cowboys and the farmers to go visit those legislatures, to go to the people that are making the decisions for us, because it's, it's not like it used to be. You know, as we've said, uh, we are about two generations removed from our food source. And until we can get that, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if we'll ever get that back. So like in our state legislation, I think we got, what, eight members up there, Jim, that understand agriculture. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always said, and I've said this whole year, is agriculture is the backbone, backbone of our country. It is the one staple thing that keeps our society somewhat civil. Because if you get a hungry man, he does odd things. Mm -hmm. We just haven't gone hungry. Well, and folks had that scare when the shutdown happened and the toilet paper ran out because people were freaking out over the toilet paper. But beef was coming off the shelves. People were buying it. They were stocking up. They were scared. That's probably the biggest um Cons the biggest consumer scare on the food and the thing since probably World War II in the Depression when people actually did not have food, um, and especially in these large populated populated states. I what, Jim, what was it like uh, seeing the grocery stores and, and just people reacting to the overreaction by consumers? Certainly, there was a, a bit of, of of panic and and hoarding and overbuying. Un, un, unnecessarily, but as you well know, the, the pipeline was running at half throttle, and especially when our, our packers had to uh, slow down and spread people out and, uh, and cattle were backing up. Consumers, you know, wondered where the heck did all the cattle go, and we had the cattle. We just couldn't shift gears so rapidly to, to keep the pipeline full when you go from half your business being through food service to 85% of it being to retail. It's a major adjustment, but uh, it, it it did give us some. I've had more conversations about production and production practices and understanding the system from cow calf all the way to the feed yard back to boxed beef than uh, in the, the last year that I've had in probably my whole my whole lifetime. And uh, we've seen a little uptick of some interest in people wanting to buy local, and we have. Uh, in our case, we created a master master uh, catalog or listing, if you will, of ranchers that were set up to do that, and and uh, that that that's a growing niche. Is is all of society going to go to that? No, sir. But it fits for some people, and we've got some taking advantage of it, and it's turning out to be nice enterprises. But it's also been eye opening to the ranchers to understand that business when you go all the way into to selling individual cuts and maintain an inventory and trying to understand how to utilize entire carcasses, it's uh, it's uh, it's a, it's a, a bit eye-opening to the to the common cow-calf rancher. But we've made some inroads and um, uh, answered a lot of questions. And I guess if anything, we've established a more of an open dialogue, if you will, with some consumers better understand the whole production chain well and it was an opportunity for cattle producers to learn all about the production chain as well i i, I believe and but but talking about production you know i know for our listeners that that maybe haven't traveled to the southeast before um and again i always my listeners probably get tired of me talking about growing up and being in production ag in montana but you know as we look at uh the blackbeards operation that we are recording this uh, show at here today um Let's just talk about what what is the majority. You know, obviously, that there's you don't have to really feed cattle in the winter down here like we do up in Montana. Um, you know, dry forage and everything like that. But uh, what 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 does a typical year look like, uh, Gene, for your operation? Now, when do you calve? Uh, do, do you have to mow some of your your pastures? Because I know some producers have to do that to kind of keep up with the growth. What just kind of walk us through your day to day operations throughout a year. Well, like us today, we, we actually calve in the spring because we, Jim mentioned there's a few of us that decided to try to do a local thing. So we actually retain ownership on our calves from the start to the finish. And uh, 
we actually got into I call it peddling a little meat, and Jim's absolutely right that it is tough. When you disassemble that that animal, you have got to find value for each and every piece. And uh, we can sell steaks all day long, but it, when it comes to that chucking around, you better find the tri-tip that they pointed out today on a couple of the broadcasts. Uh, we in the southeast here don't know what a tri-tip is. Uh, but they couldn't find one. You, they, they couldn't <laughs> find. They they went to a bunch of restaurants trying to find a tri tip for for this cooking demonstration today. And I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. So so I mean the tri tips are just different cuts that are different part of the country. But what you're finding is there's a lot of part of the country coming to here now. So you, which is a great opportunity for us. Uh, but just back to the cow calf thing. So we shifted our calving season behind most of our other. Uh, ranchers that are working with us to do this little beef thing here in the state and uh, you know so we shifted to the spring and our calves come out we feed in the summer which is not good and we harvest in the fall which is usually on an uptick so but we who we are we look at the research behind it and uh, so we do a little different you mentioned mowing yes we when it gets into the summertime the grass actually gets away from the cattle you know in the summertime you'll say well, heck you can you can stalk another 150 head here but the problem is, is when you get into those five worst months of the year, typically November through about this time of year, you're wondering where you're going to get to get the feed or the grass. Uh, so you'd kind of stop for five worst months out of the year, and then you just manage all the rest. Now, invasive weeds that I think Mr. Hanley pointed out a little while ago, that's another issue that we have to face because if it, if it draws blood or if it grows, it will grow here in Florida. Uh, so it's it's just a management thing through it, and then you're usually four to well this year we're probably six months underwater. Uh, and then we got extremely dry, so it's you know either too much, you know it's either feast or famine. So when um, you know, when you're when you're feeding, obviously, uh, what what is the protein maybe on your hay? Well, if you you know we we grow a lot of of poor quality forage, so and it depends on what grass you have. You know, if you get a star grass or something like that, you're going to probably when you cut it to hay, you probably maybe be at a ten to twelve percent for good. But if some of this other grass, it depends on the quality and the timing of that you do it. You know, our grass usually will run through most of the months about a six to eight percent crude protein, and then when you get in the winter months, that protein goes down. So we do supplement with stuff that's grown you know molasses uh, you know, uh, blackstrap molasses or they usually put some crew protein with it as well so molasses is right down the road from most of us so we use utilize that to increase the protein uh, to help digest this great quality of grass that we do have here well, uh, Russell Limits, my broadcast buddy from Montana and I, we, we've described this as almost in the opening scenes of Jurassic Park. When you come and it's just green, you're seeing alligators, you're seeing birds that we've never seen before, and uh, it, it's just truly beautiful country down here. But there's also, as you mentioned, in, invasive species, and, and that also comes in, in animal form as well. Um, I was lucky enough to help be a part of Jim Strickland's uh, pest eradication team this week as well, helping with those feral hogs uh, just just uh, right over this tree line over there. And we got to run hogs uh, uh, last night as well. Uh, Jim was saying, and for our, could, could you maybe just describe the impact that feral hogs have on the landscape around here? Because it truly looks like somebody was out there with an old John Deere plow with a horse plowing up these fields. I mean, acres of it and, and just the damage. Uh, I'll, I'll let either one of you jump in on there. But they are definitely a problem. Uh, they're hard to control. They're not as dumb as they appear to be. And you have to constantly, constantly be vigilant about trying to control the wild hog population. Feral hogs are, are everywhere. They have a footprint throughout the southeast, and I know they've stretched into Texas. With the with all our woods and and swamps and wetlands and places that it's hard to get to with 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 mechanized vehicles, it's not easy to keep up with them. And they will wreck a pasture, and it won't take long. And they'll root it up, and it's rough, and they turn it up, and uh, they are a real real problem. And I don't know if a rancher gives you access to his place, you're kind of a hero if you harvest a bunch of hogs and harvest some coyotes for him, because you cannot stay ahead of them. Um, uh, so they are, they are a constant, constant problem. And Jim estimated uh, they, they cause about $150,000 just on this Blackbeard's ranch is what he informed me. And I don't know if he was buffaloing me around, but uh, uh, 
across the whole millions of dollars to farmers and ranchers every year yeah it, it depends on the population of them you know like at at the house you know if you you might have 50 hogs come in and root up 100 acres in just a couple nights so you now you got to convert that or put it back into pasture and you know it's 300 400 dollars an acre so just out of on 100 acres you're at 30 40,000 of expense uh, I, I tell you what, it, it truly is eye-opening. You'll just be driving and, and seeing these. It looks like someone, like you said, back uh, sod-busting days almost is what it looks like to me and just going out there, especially that you probably saw that one field right right when you're coming in off the road there. Uh, eye-opening to, to me, to say the least. Uh, but, but also... Uh, there, there's so many uh, uh, different species that may be threatened or endangered down, and whether that, that could be plants as well as animals. Uh, uh, another, uh, I guess I want to talk about snakes as well. Um, is it the python? Is, do you have invasive pythons here in the state as well? Well, the python's a little bit further south. I, okay. I think they've seen some on up in, in this way, but we had a cold winter a couple of years ago that I think pushed them back down toward the Everglades. But if we stay warm like we have, I'm sure they'll be here. Yeah. I just, snakes, yeah, we, we got rattlesnakes up, up north, and they're not as big as the southern rattlesnakes I've seen in Georgia <laughs> as well. But uh, uh, talking maybe more about this Endangered Species Act uh, um, and how that impacts producers, you know, I think wherever we live and raise cattle, we get pretty tuned into what the issues are. It, it, up in my area, it's it's uh, sage grouse have been a big issue, uh, the grizzly bear, um, bison, of course, as you mentioned, brucellosis, uh, uh, just uh, very very difficult situations and uh, very political topics as well. Um, what are some of the endangered species that uh, impact Florida's uh, agriculture production, but also how do cattlemen play a role in, in species conservation? Well, I, I guess uh, one flagship species is the Florida panther, which is a pretty close cousin to your mountain lions. They're just not quite as big just because the nutrition isn't as good and the country uh, doesn't, doesn't grow them out as well, if you will. But uh, they've got a... Uh, uh, a, they are maintaining a stable population, and we are seeing the footprint of where the panthers are residing to expand. Uh, those, uh, Florida black bear, I don't think they're on the threatened and endangered species list, uh, but they are really growing uh, in, the, in, in, in where they reside. Um, of course, gators, there's not a body of water that doesn't have a gator, an alligator in it. Uh, that's a success story, if you will. Um, they were on the threatened and endangered species list. Now you, we can control them, and they do have a a hunting season uh, that you certainly have to be permitted and all for that. But uh, a lot of different species, uh, from sand skinks to to gopher tortoises to caracaras to uh, uh, different wading birds. Um, uh, there there are quite a few. Uh, there's some sparrows that uh, the, the jury's out trying to determine and we might you know there's there's threatened sparrows but in recent studies they've discovered that the sparrows thrive where a place is grazed as opposed to stripping the cattle off of it and so they benefit from cattle grazing we use prescribed burning a lot a, a, a great deal but as you can imagine people that have moved to florida and they have to tolerate some smoky days or some ash that, that's in the air. Uh, do not like, and un, do not understand controlled or prescribed burning. But it is really good for the country. And unfortunately, we have to experience uncontrolled wildfires like our, our friends in California and the West have experienced to get the attention of the uninformed public to say, you know, that tool called prescribed burning is real important. In our case, it is important for threatened and endangered species. And in our case, it's important for maintaining uh, the ecosystem because it's natural. It naturally occurs here with all the lightning. Um, so uh, we, we, it ebbs and flows. If we get a lot of wildfires, the public's uh, a little more tolerant of prescribed burning if we have a series of years where we don't have any wildfires then they gripe and complain to the agency that, uh, that might give gene 
and his team a permit to do some burning. But if they'll just tolerate some of it, everybody wins. But it's an education process, and they have to recognize they might be inconvenienced with some prescribed burning. But it does take care of the threatened and endangered species. Well, just uh, when Jim Strickland here at Blackbeard's Ranch, we were driving through, and 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 you can see where the where their prescribed burn came through. But you could also see a bunch of uh, Osceola turkey toms out there uh, hanging out. And I know all my hunting buddies are like, "You got to see some Osceolas because uh, they want to get a grand slam." But uh, to to see that, and then to go into the area that hasn't been prescribed burn uh, lately or, or for some time, I mean, it it's a definitely uh, a change in grass that grows where that burned. And and just like when when we're up, you know, there's some sagebrush that you can't burn. The Wyoming big sage, you'd never burn that out in the West. But there's other sagebrush varieties that do need to be burned, and, and it actually helps sage grouse populations for folks up in my country. But it it, it truly was great just to go from about a quarter mile just to see how that changes and how that opens it up for the livestock but again the animals in there because there was a lot of turkeys back up in there and and like Jim said they wouldn't burn right now because there's a lot of hatchlings running around uh, as well but and uh, but it just comes into sharing your story or people having to be uncomfortable for a few days uh, due to that prescribed burn um but uh, you both mentioned water uh, a little bit ago, and uh, it, it was interesting uh, listening to some of the uh, folks interview uh, Jim Strickland and and, uh, and the uh, Food Network chef that was uh, do, that was doing these broadcasts out here today, talking about beef sustainability, and and of course, you know, a lot of people just have those preconceived notions about uh, what what cattle producers do, and uh, I know especially here in, in uh, Florida. A, a lot of uh, talk about algae bloom and uh, Lake Okeechobee. Um, how have you, as a, as a producer and as a leader in the Florida Cattlemen's Association, re- relied heavily on the science and the common sense that comes along with this discussion of algae blooms and water quality in the state? Yeah, you know, if, you, if we look back with the association back uh, 22 years, or 1998, when past president NCBA uh, Marty Smith was president of the Florida Cattlemen's Association you know so you're looking 20 years back uh, saw the need to do things called best management practices so the association stepped up ahead of the curve to look at and saying hey what what can we do to assist to to mitigate any issues that might be real or perceived so back then we formulated and and built a, a best management manual for the for the cattle ranchers and uh, we've a lot of ranches have put those to practice I think I heard Mr. Strickland saying today here on this ranch that they've put some structures in to slow or the rate at which water comes off because I believe you know again like you said earlier in 1940 1950 people were hungry well those producers saw fit that they didn't want to go hungry so we produced a lot of food and in Florida we probably there's some areas we might have over drained a little bit um, you know where I grew up in Osceola County I might I, I always ask some of the water managers is how much more water is leaving that system today that never used to leave it because now there's houses where the water used to set all summer long so the best management practices come into play with that and you know with the ranchers that are left up there for us uh, we put in I think 60 or 80 different water control structures on our ranch. And what we do is attenuate or slow the rate at which the water comes off our property, which helps a great deal. Uh, you know, just manipulation of our mineral boxes and, and how we move cattle a little more frequently than what we might have in the past. Uh, so best management practices came into play, you know, quite a, many years ago. So with water... It is about managing it, and that's not letting it all rush off and, and go south. So, and I guess on the the legislative side or just the PR side, Jim, uh, how important is it for folks to come out and see implements like uh, Gene put on there on on the operation he's on, just to, to be firsthand to see these conservation and sustainability practices? Yeah, pictures worth a thousand words. Certainly, the state was. Uh, developed and diked and ditched actually with government subsidized programs as they wanted to put put swamp and overflow land into production 
and to sustain a, a growing population and to make it productive part of the landscape. Um, a lot of the dikes and ditches on, they plumbed Florida and willingly did so. And, and now in some cases, they're understanding that they might need to reverse those. And they have rehydrated some wetlands. They have plugged some ditches. They have removed some, some water control structures. But if you bring people out and show them, and we have some examples on ranches that we can show them that it's quite compatible with cattle grazing. In some instances, they may have had to reduce their stocking rate a little bit, but cattle are pretty, pretty, uh, they, they will follow the water line and they'll graze wetlands and marshes and do them quite well. In fact, at Gene's place, they've done years of study from different practices, stocked and burned, stocked and, stocked and, 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 and not burned. Uh, nothing at all, and then they've they've evaluated the water quality. They've evaluated the the uh, diversity of the landscape and the makeup of the plants. Um, certainly, we know any part of the world you can overstock and you can mismanage, but uh, most people recognize they want to, if they take care of their place, it'll take care of their cow herd. The cow herd will take care of them. So I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but water is a huge issue. Um, here in Florida, and Gene mentioned our BMPs, our best management practices uh, for nutrient managements for cow-calf operations. They've been in place a long time. A lot of the things in them um, are very practical, but they have to make economic sense for them to really be embraced and implemented. And, and again, if, if something's implemented that, that damages Gene's potential to be profitable on an acre, uh, there's there's potential for for uh, for that land use to change. And you know, in agriculture, sometimes when we go down to the local cafe or the stockyards, we tend to just complain about things a lot of the time. I, I know I do it. I know a lot of people do it. But uh, Jim, what are some of the successes over the past few years? Maybe some of these great pro other projects that uh, that your officer team and, and the team at the Florida Cattlemen's are, are, are working on and just, you know, make you say, hey, our, our hard work is really paying off. We've won some some outstanding support at the state level for funding for uh, 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 additional research, and that's production research, um, things that truly can be implemented on ranches, and that's from understanding soils, understanding nutrient management, to improve forages, to uh, to weed uh, uh, management programs. It's a wide array. I could show you five years worth of projects some five and a half million dollars that are a direct result of our lobbying and efforts at the state capitol we have a very strong uh, uh, research and animal science department um, that serves our industry when i say our industry that would be beef dairy and equine industries quite well we have a strong set of of uh, of educators of extension people and research scientists and certainly we can point to um, some of our lobbying efforts uh, that, that they benefited from. We're constantly fighting to hold that. We have uh, some nice, nice uh, research stations across the state. In our case, we have a foundation that has been involved in building buildings for them to expand their number of uh, grad students. It's each one of those units. And... Um, and uh, we're proud of those facilities, um, and we have high expectations of the, the land-grant folks because uh, we believe in them and know that they can make us more efficient, and I can also help us educate the public on the good and the value of the ranching industry to the state and our unique uh, ecosystem. And uh, it just, I, I don't want to insult anyone saying the wrong university. What, what is your land-grant university? Well, we have two land-grant universities. We have Florida A&M, um, and we have the University of Florida. I just wanted to make sure because, you know, when people come up to Montana and they say, well, University of Montana, I'm like, no, it's Montana State University is our land grant. But so what What I guess I, I think that's that's pretty unique having two land grant universities. But again, like you said, it's always a fight no matter where you're at to make sure that those land grants are funded, that they have facilities. I mean, this is, sounds like the discussion we're having up in Montana so much of the time, just trying to get new teaching facilities on our on our on our university farms. Um 
what, why is it so important that we continue to, to have these opportunities and, and to have two of them? That's, that's even two times the work to make sure that they're funded. Well, it, when you take the case of the, the mission of the, the original land grant mission is uh, extension research and, and teaching or education. So it's a, a three legged stool. As you know, the research develops the science or develops uh, modern practices, uh, investigates theory and, and tries to determine what will work and what might be implemented on farm. Teaching is educating the future managers of operations. And then the extension side carries the information out to the countryside to be implemented. In our case, extension is extremely diverse because we have such a diverse population of the 22 million uh we have some very very uh densely populated areas and in the makeup of an extension office in in dade or broward county would be somewhat different than the the extension office in highlands or hardy county but they customize it to fit the constituency and i think you understand that extension is a shared uh program where the county invests some dollars and along with state and then there's federal monies uh, but they're there to serve and in some instances they may be teaching home ec and and personal business management and how to balance your checkbook and how to feed your children on a limited income in other instances they may be uh, uh, an animal scientist or a forage specialist that's working with Gene Lawless or any other ranch manager and trying to analyze what they're doing and how to improve their their forage program, if you will. Um, so uh, they, they play a vital role in in the case of our uh, of the of the major land grant, the University of Florida shoot, they do termite work. And so that affects every single citizen in the state. If we can control termites, mosquito control, that affects everybody in the state. Um, uh, the, the work they do overlaps to, they don't have to own a big ranch for them to be positively impacted by the work being done. And, and I speak in terms of just the animal industries and the ranching industry, but if you look at its diversity, it's incredible uh, of what, what work they do. I mean, on land grant, I mean, that's the purpose, agricultural production. And there shouldn't be a, a land grant university across our United States that's not funded to its fullest because there's no greater time for us to maximize the new technologies that we're getting to be able to produce even more, you know, the food needs of the future. Um, I, I know we probably got to get going here pretty soon here. We've been talking for just under 50 minutes, gentlemen, but uh, what, what are some ways that uh, you're able to attract younger producers to join the association? What, what are some of the, the ways that these new up and coming folks that are either moving or starting their own operations? Uh, uh, what, are, what, what are just some things that you provide your young producers out there? Well, we have a great program here with the Florida Cattlemen's Association through our Florida Cattlemen's Foundation uh, that we take. It's called the Florida Cattlemen's Leadership Academy. And uh, we seek from our county organizations uh, applicants every year. And we've been truly blessed that we've actually had to turn folks away because we try to keep it to a, a minimum of about 12 of those folks every year in coming. And, and we've had, uh, we're on class seven right now. And uh, so we go in, we travel, come to ranches like Blackbeard and several other ranches. We go around the state to show them ministry from start to finish. And um, that is a great opportunity for the younger, the younger folks to get out and get, start getting involved. Well, again, I, I appreciate you both. Jim, did you want to jump in there? Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Just all the normal educational programs, uh, BQA certification programs, uh, uh, media training, um, certainly advertising, working close with extension, uh, and, and, the, and the educators. We have a, a tremendously strong beef cattle short course. We have some other regional programs 
uh, that are held around, and we just encourage and try to get people to come to town to look and listen. If they're the further educated they are, the the better off we are as a collective whole of an industry. And uh, there's a lot of opportunity for them to learn, and we just try to make it as convenient as possible. We have a very strong junior program, totally volunteer driven. Uh, by volunteer leaders and a very strong, I called it leadership, citizen development a program. Not They show cattle, but they have public speaking. And they um, complement and supplement both FFA and 4-H. Well, again, it's it's all about having the, the resources available and whether that is providing those opportunities for young producers or having the, the research on the science-based end of things to help educate consumers and lawmakers. Uh, we covered a lot here today, and like I said, I know we're kind of winding down on time, but Gene or Jim, any last words you would just like to share with our cattlemen and women tuning in here across the nation today? Well, I think, you know, I think the whole basis of this this week's been sustainability. You know, those the buzzwords that we all hear. I think what we all need to do uh, – is commit, take action, unite, come together and recognize those are the things that's going to keep us going into the future, is embrace what some of the, sometimes the unknown and uh, keep us moving forward. Jim, any last thoughts before we let you hit the road here? Well, I would just say that the ranching industry is a very uh, uh, humble a strong profession. There's a. I don't care where you are in the country. There are great people involved in ranching, and they understand how to take care of of, uh, of God's creation. And uh, I just encourage people to, regardless of how difficult it gets, to to stay stay strong in your in your convictions, and uh, let's all work to 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 continue to better the industry. In our case, we want there to be a big cattle footprint in florida another 500 years amen 500 years the longest producer the the longest uh, cattle producing history here in the state of florida 500 years that's amazing well gentlemen thank you both for joining us here today uh, for more information visit floridacattleman.org and uh, thank you so much for your hospitality. I wish I wasn't flying out early in the morning because uh, I could uh, enjoy the, the warm weather and uh, that hog eradication team that uh, I'm a part of now down here. Well, folks, thanks for joining us here on the Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm Lane Nordland. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.